Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who have come to offer praise. Your word reminds us that you inhabit praises from people who, who have been bought with a price, people who have discovered that it was sin that has separated us from you, and it was a grand and glorious sovereign work that was accomplished by you on behalf of your people that has brought, you to, brought us to your side. We are a people whose sin has been paid for. The sin of the past, the sin of the present, and even that which will come in the future. All of it paid for in the completed and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And for that great salvation, O oh God, we are a people of praise. Our Father, there are some among us who come in this morning that have had some pretty bad news over the past seven days. Uh, news about their job or their own health or their family or their kids or their marriage. And we pray, Lord, that as we are gathered together as your people around your word, that there might be something from heaven for each of them. The man who will stand behind the pulpit is just as sinful as the rest of us. He's not our solution. We pray that apart from him, that you will speak that which will find its way to the place where only you and I go, to the place at the center of my soul that longs to know you better and to be drawn closer. Minister truth to us this morning, O oh God. Might we be a people who leave here not with more Knowledge stuffed into our heads. We want, Father, from that knowledge to grow relationship. We have come not simply to put another note into our spiritual binders. We've come to discover who you are and how we can find nearness to you. Nearness, O oh God, is the norm. And we long to be closer. So by all that goes on here today, woo us, draw us, draw us close to that precious bleeding side. Our Father, we get a chance now to participate in a very tangible way. We get to give. It's our privilege, Father, to give. And I pray that you'll use these monies to accomplish what you called us into being to accomplish. We have not been brought into being to, to feather a nest for us. We've been called into being to reach the world with the gospel of good news about Jesus Christ. So use every dime of this for that purpose. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Habakkuk. That's going to be fairly difficult to find. It's, uh, if you'll find the New Testament and go left about three books, you'll find it there. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. So, uh, it's the book of the prophecy of Habakkuk. And I'd like to read you to you the entire first chapter and then four verses of the second chapter. It's not that much, so if you'll just stay with me, um, I'd like to read beginning at verse one and ending at chapter two, verse four. Here we go. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw 
O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though, I, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their nets and burn incense to their dragnet. Because of them, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they, therefore, empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Keep your Bibles open. You might want to use them as we walk through this sermon this morning. Today, whether you know it or not, is, is quite a big day. It's an historic day, particularly in, in uh, Christendom. It has nothing to do with candy and costumes. And Roman Catholicism is not real wild about the day. But uh, in Protestant Christendom, ladies and gentlemen, this is a big day. Uh, and I bet you that I'm not the only one that's standing in his pulpit right about now preaching essentially what I'm about to preach. This is a big day. But it hasn't to do with uh, costumes and the candy we might exchange tonight. 
At the center of this big day is the book of Habakkuk. What does the book of Habakkuk have to do with October the 31st? Well, to answer that question, I need to tell you two stories. And they're both pretty long. But the first story that I want to tell you is a story that is contained in the book of Habakkuk. Um, you might not, underst- might, might not have understood what I read to you, but I hope to explain it to you. But the first story that I want to tell you is the one that, that is contained in this book of Habakkuk. Here we go. The book of Habakkuk contains two parts. The first part consists of chapter 1 and 2. That's, that's part 1, chapters 1 and 2. All right? Chapter 3 is the second part. Chapters 1 and 2 contain a dialogue. A dialogue that is going, going on between Habakkuk the prophet and God. Part 2, or chapter 3, is a prayer. It's Habakkuk's prayer. It's an ode to trust. Now, chapter 3 is something that we know a little bit about. Because we know a little bit about verses 17 and 18. We love 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Let me read it to you, because it is wonderful. Uh, Habakkuk says in 3.17, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. That word nevertheless, or the word yet in your translation, is a word of faith, it's a word of of trust. It is a moving statement on the part of a man who determines that he will trust God even in the most dire of circumstances. Nevertheless, whether there's no sheep, there's no cattle, there's no olives, there's no nothing, I will trust you. But understanding verses 17 and 18 won't help you much in understanding chapter 1 and 2. But understanding chapter 1 and 2 will help you understand chapter 3. So let's look at chapters 1 and 2 and see if I can explain them to you. Because as I said, they are a dialogue. It is a conversation, a very heated conversation, that is going on between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk opens the conversation in verse 2 of chapter 1. It goes through verse 4. It contains, that is, verses 2, through 2 3, and 4 contain a question. Habakkuk has a question for God. And here's the question. God, when are you going to do something about the wickedness in our land? Huh? I mean, um, look, look at the statement that he makes in verse 4 where he says, the, um, the wicked surround the righteous. Look at the words that are contained in those three verses. <laughs> words like violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, strife, contention. And all of this is going on in the southern half of the kingdom, in Judah. Now, the prophet looks at all the wickedness that is in his, the, the, the world where he lives, and he turns to God and he says, All right, God, when are you going to do something about this? When are you going to step forward and do something about the wickedness that overwhelms us? Okay, God, I want an answer. When are you going to do something? 
God then replies to that question, and his reply begins in verse 5. And of course, I'm paraphrasing God's reply to Habakkuk. But God answers Habakkuk beginning in verse 5, going through verse 11. And the reply is basically something like this. Oh, Habakkuk, don't you worry your little self at all. I'm going to do something. I'm about to do something that... (laughs) I'm about to raise up the Chaldeans. By the way, that's the Babylonians. Look look at them in verse 6. A bitter and a hasty nation. And I'm about to bring that bitter and hasty nation down. You know, when their horses are faster than leopards, they scoff at princes and they just deride any kind of stronghold. <laughs> I'm about to bring the Chaldeans down and you watch and see Habakkuk. They are going to bring my vengeance. Yes, sir, Habakkuk, don't you worry because I will, I will bring vengeance on all that wickedness in Judah. And I'm going to bring Chaldeans down from the north to do it. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, it is now Habakkuk's turn again. And the next sound that you hear from Habakkuk is a loud prophetic gulp. You're going to do what? You're going to bring the Chaldeans down upon Judah? Wait a minute. I'm not sure I understand you here, God. You're going to bring the Chaldeans from the north to judge Judah? God, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, 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 I don't, I don't get it. God, look at verse 13. Are you not, are your eyes not too holy to even look upon iniquity? And, 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 and by the way, God, I'm, I'm having a bit of a, a prophetic apoplexy here. There is a, there's a considerable disconnect between me and you right now, God. Chaldeans? Punishing Judah? God, shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, God, isn't Judah the more righteous of the two? I know, by the way, God, this is in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'll be waiting. I'll be eagerly waiting. I want an answer. And I'll be waiting at the ramparts, God, because I want to hear what you got to say to this. I don't understand this. I mean, it seems to me, God, if I, if I, you know, if I understand rightly, uh, I mean, the Judah is the more righteous of the two, and you're going to use Chaldea to punish Judah? That doesn't make any sense. Then God replies. It starts in chapter 2, verse 2, and it goes to the end of chapter 2. And God says to Habakkuk the second time, and again I paraphrase, he says, oh, Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk, I'm sorry about any discomfort that I may have caused you. But unfortunately, big boy, you got things all wrong. What's this business, Habakkuk, about The more righteous versus the less righteous. Habakkuk, don't you understand, says verse 4, that the just shall live by their faith? Habakkuk, 
The people that I identify as my people don't become my people uh, because of some standard of performance they may have determined to observe. Habakkuk. My people don't become my people because they, they performed in a certain way or because they're a part of a certain nation or belong to a certain group. Uh, Habakkuk. You've got this thing all wrong, son. You are, you are, you are thinking that, um, because you've got certain religious performances that are associated with your nation, that will make you a, a, a righteous people, and they're the ones that ought to receive all the blessing when all these wicked people up here in Chaldea, those are the ones that ought to be cursed. Oh no, Habakkuk. You've got it wrong. Because Habakkuk, the just, shall live by faith. You know, I hesitate to use this illustration because uh, it, it, it is packed with emotion for so many. But uh, you may recall back at the 1st of September when a group of terrorists uh, took over a school in Beslan, Russia. And uh, ultimately blew it up and, uh, oh, there, I forget exactly the details, but maybe 1,100 people were killed and 400 of them were children. Such a ghastly sight to look at and to hear about and... There's no amount of justification that can uh, be used to justify what, what they did. That, that, was a, that was a bestial, um, demonic, uh, wicked thing that went on there. It may, and it, it, uh, only exacerbated by the fact that so many of those children were killed. But if you could, just for a second, try to forget the, the, the images and the sights of seeing all those children killed, which was inexcusable. Think about it like this, just for a moment. Think about it as Russia versus Chechnya. Now, what do you have there? Do you have righteous Russia versus wicked Chechnya? Is that what you got? Or do you have wicked Russia versus wicked Chechnya? Or how about this, a little closer to home? What do you have in Iraq? Is it righteous America versus wicked Iraq? You know, ladies and gentlemen, you may not know this, but one of the reasons that the Muslims so hate us is because they blame us as a country for exporting all, their, all of our filth into um, into their countries. Wait, that may not be true. Maybe it's Australia's fault for all I know. But they blame us for exporting filth. And we sure have exported some, haven't we? So what do you have, ladies and gentlemen? Is it because we belong to America that we're all righteous over here and it's just those poor wicked Iraqis over there that need to, to experience God's judgment? Is that it? No, no, Habakkuk. You missed it. People don't become my people because they live in a certain nation or belong to a certain group. The just shall live by faith. That's how the just become just. It's by faith. And then chapter 3 is Habakkuk's reply to God. It's a prayer. 
Now, having heard all that, let me read to you verses 17 and 18 again. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. Gang, um, what you have there is a man who finally comes to the place where he understands that it's not a less righteous versus the more righteous. It's the just versus the unjust. And the just are made just because they exercise faith. Okay, again I ask, what, what does that have to do with October the 31st? Good question. That brings me to my second story. Have you ever heard of the name of Martin Luther? Sure you have. We, we sang his great hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang it. Well, Martin Luther was this German monk who became a monk because one day he was walking outside in a thunderstorm and a clap of, thun- a clap of lightning, or a bolt of lightning, a real one, not a, not a figurative, but a real one, a bolt of lightning struck so close to where he was walking that it knocked him into a ditch. He was scared pea green, ladies and gentlemen, and as a result of that experience, he vowed that he would enter the monastery. And so on July the 2nd of 1505, Martin Luther entered the monastery in Germany. Uh, that was 465 days before my wedding day. And in case you're wondering, um, July the 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther enters a, an Augustinian monastery and becomes a monk. About five years after that, which would have put it around 1510, about 1510, Martin Luther pays a visit to Rome. And while there, he is utterly disillusioned. Because he, at every turn, is confronted with rampant immorality, especially on the part of the Roman priesthood. There was some pretty ugly stuff going on in Rome when, when Luther, I guess there still is, but a pretty ugly stuff. And you can read about it, ladies and gentlemen. I read about it in Roland Bainton's book, Roland Bainton's book, Roland Bainton's book, Here I Stand. And so Martin Luther is observing all of this Roman Catholic priesthood and they are absolutely lecherous. But the apex of his visit, the high point of his visit to Rome came when he visited the then unfinished St. Peter's Cathedral. And there he traveled up the Scala Sancta. That means the sacred stairs. They were the stairs that supposedly Jesus had stood on in his trial before Pilate. And they had been flown to, um, to Rome by angels. And so now they're there in Rome. And Martin Luther is climbing up those stairs on his hands and knees, step by step, saying a paternoster, a, a um, the Lord's Prayer, for every step, kissing every step for good measure in the hopes that he might deliver somebody from purgatory. He leaves there completely disillusioned with what he had seen and what he had experienced. About five years after that, which would put us about 1515, Martin Luther begins to study and teach the book of Romans. And it is not long thereafter that he comes across Romans chapter 1, 
verse 17. Let me read that to you. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. As you can tell, Romans 1.17 contains a quote. A quote that had been taken from Habakkuk 2.4. Now, gang, it is hard to describe exactly what happened to Martin Luther as a result of, of that, this study in the book of um, um, uh, Romans. He, he talks about having entered the very gates of heaven, having, uh, having the gates of uh, paradise opened unto him as he, as he tried to... Um, I have done a terrible thing. My dear, my dear wife, would you hand me that? No, that. Thank you. Um, I wanted you to read it from Martin Luther's, um, my lovely wife, uh, July the 2nd, 1505. Um, I wanted you to read, I wanted you to hear what Martin Luther said um, as a result of studying and coming to understand Romans 117. Listen to this. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would, merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the just, whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, gang, hopefully you can see what it is, what it is that happened to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, having spent 10 years in an Augustinian monastery, came for the first time to an understanding of the simple doctrine of justification by faith alone. All of his life, he had thought that he had to give to God a righteousness to placate him. And then he discovered that the righteousness that was needed to write him before God was a righteousness that God provided him. That all of his so-called merit, all of his so-called good doings, all of his so-called uh, religious observances and performances, all of that which he thought 
was going to be necessary to placate him before God. He recognized it was never enough. It could never be enough. And he recognized that the just became just by faith. And it was as if the gates of heaven About two years after that, 1517, on October the 31st of 1517, Martin Luther went to the place where civic announcements were normally posted on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and on it, He nailed 95 challenges to the Roman Catholic Church, his famous 95 theses. And the Roman Catholic papacy had been attacked by a monk who was armed primarily with one verse of Scripture out of the book of Habakkuk. The world has never been the same since. My friends, if you have not yet discovered a little bit about what it is that Martin Luther discovered, let me tell you. If you are still thinking as he did, that the way to right yourself before God is to is to give enough money and teach enough Sunday school classes and and help enough little old ladies across the street. It is a lie. You have hold of a lie. Because the gospel states that the just shall live by faith. What Martin Luther had done is uncover a long-since-forgotten doctrine of of the doctrine of justification by faith, which declares a gospel so beautiful and promises forgiveness to any who exercise faith. It's a gospel that promises forgiveness, not based on my merit, but based on the merits of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And His merits become mine by faith. If you have exercised that kind of faith, then I say to you, A happy All Saints Day to you. If you are here, still thinking that the way that you will ready yourself for heaven is by living a religiously impeccable life, I guess all I have to say to you 
It's happy Halloween. Our Father, I do pray that the difference in, in the gospel will shine in all of its beauty this morning. The difference between it and, and man's assumptions that he can earn his way into heaven. Men who think that they have lived a fairly good life and that they are more righteous than the other guys but have never exercised faith in the finished work of Christ, will find that they are just as wicked as the other guys. Our whole hope is to be found in Christ Jesus and His finished, accomplished work. And it is that that has put indeed a measure, a wellspring of happiness within the soul of each one who understands it. We glory, O God, in the provisions that you have made for sinners such as we. For, O God, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not the Chechens, not the Chaldeans, not the Iraqis, not the Americans, not the people who attend Gracie Van. The just become just by the exercise of his faith. Oh God, make that abundantly clear to every set of ears and every heart here. We ask it, of course, for Jesus' sake.